Hi everyone, Wynn Claybaugh here. Although we live in amazing times with incredible advancements in science, technology, and many other fields, human trafficking and slavery still exist in heartbreaking numbers around the world. At this moment, 21 million people worldwide are victims of forced labor, and one in six runaways in the United States are likely to become sex trafficking victims. In honor of National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month, this week's podcast features an interview I did a few years ago with Kay Buck, CEO of the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking. CAST was one of the first organizations in America to advocate for laws to protect victims, develop model programs for survivors, and open a shelter for trafficked women and their children. While this is not an easy topic to think about, our whole planet needs to hear Kay's powerful message. I hope you'll share it with everyone you know. They can listen on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and Spotify podcasts, as well as masterspodcastclub.com. And now, get ready to learn how you can be a part of the solution and make this world a better, safe place. Hi everybody, Wynn Claybaugh here, and welcome to this wonderful issue of Masters, which is going to be quite the education that all of us need to receive. The whole planet needs to listen to this message, uh, simply because I think it's a hard topic for people to listen to. I think it's one of those things that people want to pretend does not exist, and that is the whole idea of slavery and trafficking. And uh, I've tried to educate myself over the last several years, and, and in the process of educating myself, have looked up who I think to be experts and gotten to know these people. And the woman that I'm sitting with right now truly, truly is such a wonderful representative of this issue and someone who's on the forefront of making a difference. Not to mention the fact that if you saw her, she'd be a model. She'd be top in the salon. She's beautiful, too. I don't know why I said that. Oh, but that's uh, so nice. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here with Kay Buck. I don't know. Maybe maybe people think that you're supposed to look like, a, you know, like a grassroots. Uh, exactly. <laughs> well, I am that, too, on the inside. You're yeah. totally grassroots. You know? I really am. Yeah. But but I'll, I've, I've, I've also seen you in action. You know the importance of uh, somehow marketing, which that's got to be a tough thing to do, marketing what you do and what you're all about to be able to bring a celebrity light and a, a focus of fundraising so that people will give money because that's, at the end of the day, what you need. You need attention. You need money. And yeah, you're true. brilliant at that as well. So, Aww. Kay, welcome to Masters. Thank you, Wynn. Um, thank you for having me here today. I'm just thrilled to be here to... You know, not only talk about the issue of human trafficking and what CAST does, but also the partnership that we have with you and Paul Mitchell Schools. And I'm so appreciative of that. So it's, thank it's, you. It's a pleasure. So let me read a little bit about Kay and, and who she is. So you have a, a little bit of background here. So for 25 years of experience leading innovative anti-trafficking initiatives in the United States and abroad, joining the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking which is called CAST, C-A-S-T, in 2003, Kay leads one of the longest-running anti-slavery organizations in this nation. Under Kay's leadership, CAST was one of the first organizations in this country to advocate for laws 
to protect victims, develop model programs for survivors, and open a shelter for trafficked women and their children. I mean, this goes on and on. You've received all kinds of awards, the people that you work with, the organizations that you work with. You have a lot of experience, which I'm going to ask you to share with us. You lived abroad in Asia for five years? Yeah, almost six years. Yeah, that's right. So I lived initially in Japan, and I worked with the Asian Women's Shelter. And at that time... Honestly, human trafficking was not on anyone's radar across the globe. And so we worked on a program where they accepted survivors of trafficking in this shelter. And it was a first of its kind at the time. And that is where I not only learned about human trafficking directly from survivors themselves, but it's also where I just caught this incredible passion for this issue. Mm-hmm. You also recently received an award or some acknowledgement at the White House. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was great. I mean, I should also say That was great. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was was a little bit more than great for her. I actually really enjoyed it because it's the first time I didn't have to actually prepare a speech. All I had to do was go there and receive the award and enjoy the moment. Hmm. And uh, it was Secretary Kerry who recognized us and gave us the actual, it was an actual medal, medal of honor. And uh, I got to do that with our board president, Butch Schumann, and two survivors of our National Survivor Network. So that was incredible to be there, not just with cast leadership, but with two survivors who were recipients of our programs and it was amazing. It was an amazing day. And what they have done with oh, with their lives. And, it's amazing. Wow. Well yeah, I always say like that's what I've learned from survivors. I mean, when I was working in Japan, I should also point out I also spent several years in um, Thailand as well. So I worked in Japan initially and then wanted to really address this from a prevention standpoint. And so I moved to Thailand and worked with these incredible NGOs, non-governmental organizations um, to address trafficking from prevention. And it was a big learning experience. One of the first survivors I met, you know, really set me straight. I think I had the idea that uh, victims of human trafficking were broken, you know, vulnerable people, like people who wouldn't be able to stand up for themselves. Mm-hmm. And boy, this young woman proved me wrong. She mm-hmm. basically said, you know, I don't need anyone, you know, from any country coming here and rescuing me. What I need is a leg up. I need someone to believe me that this happened. I need for someone to support me. That's all I need. And I know that I can, you know, rebuild from there. And so that is what framed my whole career, you know, by listening to that one survivor, and that she wasn't the only one. There were several survivors who had the same experience, I think, of, you know, lots of non-governmental organizations and certainly of governments wanting to swoop in and rescue people instead of really listening to the community of survivors and what they really need from us. And so I feel really privileged that I was one of the first to be able to Um, have that listening tour, if you will. And I decided right there and then that that's what I was going to do. I was going to live my life listening to survivors and creating programs that would truly and practically, like in a practical way, help them. 
So that's what I did. And then, you know, fast forward, what, 25 years later, because this year is actually my 25th year working on this issue mm-hmm. abroad and also here in the United States. And uh, last April, so in 2014, we received the Presidential Award for Leadership in Combating Human Trafficking here and around the world. And what an experience that was. I mean, there's really not even words for it to describe. We were the first nonprofit organization to receive this award. And I really, it's all because of the survivors we serve and the staff that I have the privilege of working with because they too listen to survivors. We have a culture, a, a kind of an organizational culture at CAST that is all about being survivor-centered, which means listening and not judging, and forming programs around what the real needs are for uh, the men and the women and the children who are trafficked. I have a feeling that that probably happens in uh, lots of different scenarios where those who the programs are designed for aren't really considered. So people are behind the closed doors creating, oh, this is going to be great for them. And really, in reality, because they're not listening to the victims and the survivors, it's just a waste of time and a waste of money. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like we know best. And, right. you know, it's, it's interesting. When I took the job at CAST, which was in 2003, I went to Washington, D.C. for my very first, you know, D.C. meeting for, on behalf of CAST. And I was really surprised that not only were there no survivors in the room, and this, this is where big policy decisions were being discussed, but I was only one of two service providers present. So not even, they hadn't even invited people who actually had spoken to a survivor before. So, and I, I should say too that there were only two women in the room as well. It was mostly a room of men who were deciding about policy for, you know, survivors who had not even been consulted. And so when I came back to Los Angeles, I you know, talked with my staff and said, you know, we actually, there's a real gap here in the movement. And I should say that the people around the room, they weren't doing it intentionally. They weren't not listening intentionally. They just didn't know how and they didn't have someone telling them that they could. And so we went to work and developed a very unique program which started as the Survivor Advisory Caucus, which was local to Los Angeles because that's where the survivors we serve reside. And it's grown since then, and we've scaled it nationally. So now it's the National Survivor Network, and we're taking steps this year and next to scale it even more globally so that we can connect survivors of trafficking all over the world to be informing these important policy decisions at all levels, local and international. So, yeah, when I returned from D.C. to Los Angeles, my staff was really excited. And, you know, certainly the survivors that we serve, uh, ones who've graduated, those were the first people we consulted with about this program. They thought it was a great idea, too. And it started small. I remember at the first meeting, only three survivors showed up. And you know, I know my staff was a little bit concerned that maybe this wasn't a good idea after all, but we stuck with it and, you know, look where we are now, where it's over 140 survivors representing several different countries, including the United States, because survivors are not only from other countries. This is also happening right here in the United States, where 
mostly American girls, but also boys, are trafficked in both sex trafficking and labor trafficking. And so they're a big part of the National Survivor Network as well. And, you know, I, I love to say this because I'm so... I'm so proud of the work of the what we call the NSN, the National Survivor Network. They just returned from D.C. last week where they met with high-level White House officials, um, Department of State, um, and also Department of Health and Human Services. And what they're doing is really pressuring the federal government to make good on the promises that the federal government made to survivors two years ago. Because two years ago, the federal government for the first time, put out this strategic action plan for all of the federal agencies to do better in serving survivors. And it's usually an access issue, right, where survivors, even though there are systems designed to help them, they're broken. They're failing survivors, and survivors have a very difficult time accessing the services and programs that they're entitled to by law and that taxpayers are paying for. So what good is a program or a system if people can't access it, right? And so the survivors of the National Survivor Network have really done a great job in meeting with these high-level officials and saying, let me help you. I mean, this is what needs to happen if you truly want to make a difference. And the great thing about it is that these agencies are listening. They are taking meetings with my policy staff at CAST and survivors. So it's pretty exciting time for them and for the movement. I want to take you to a couple of places here. Yeah. First of all, let me just read this. So prior to joining CAST, you were the director of the Rape Prevention Resource Center of the California Coalition Against Sexual Assault in 2005. Kay was recognized as a change maker, dream maker. Wow. <laughs> Alongside Senator... Hillary Rodham Clinton by the Women's Foundation of California. You hold a bachelor's degree in women's studies and you're a senior fellow at Marshall School of Business from USC. Most people who come into some type of a career, they have a personal story. There was something that happened to you or that you witnessed, that you experienced, that drew you to to this. And by the way, knowing that I was going to have this interview with you today... I did a little bit of little research, like I need to see a documentary. And so I researched and I found a documentary. Mm-hmm. Kate, it took me three days to watch it because I was so yeah, bothered. Impacted. Yeah, yeah. Like I couldn't sit there. Yeah. Like I could take it in, you know, bites and pieces, but then I had to leave. I had to leave the room because I was just so impacted by it. It was just so hard to watch and to witness and to listen to. And this is what you're now dealing with every single day. But there was an original story, correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, you never told yeah. me, but I'm just guessing because that's most yeah. people. They are advocates for breast cancer because yeah. it hit their family. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. what's your story? Yeah. Well, you know, when I was seven years old, um, my sister was killed, and she was 16 at the time. And not only did it impact me uh, as a seven-year-old, it, you know, it changed the course of my family, right? The family dynamics changed. And, you know, my whole life, I really longed for that love and, you know, support that you can only get from a sister. And I really believe that that's what started me on this long journey searching for sisterhood, because it really informed um, 
my my teenage years, my certainly my time at university, and then of course my career. My family always jokes today about they knew I was going to be fighting for women and girls' rights early on. I think they say as young as eleven, I was showing signs, wow. and you know I, I think that that's what it was. I was really, you know, at heart an advocate because. So often women and girls are marginalized in a lot of different industries and movements and and different landscapes. And I could see that even as a seven or eight-year-old. What's that Madonna song about, about I have to kind of be less than, I can't speak my voice so that I, I don't offend the boys, right. I don't offend the men. It I does. have to it does. tone it, myself down in order true. to... It's true, and I know. did feel that way a lot until I think I just got sick of it, and I decided that I wasn't going to tone myself down, and I knew intuitively that the norm was going to change in the future, that one day in my lifetime there would be more emphasis on the status of women and girls and empowering women and girls. And so early on I just joined that movement. And then how did you go to Asia? How did you end up there? Actually one of my professors, you know, knowing how deeply I felt about the issue of empowering women and girls and certainly from a global standpoint too. All of my work at university was really focused on global violence against women. Because it is, even though it happens locally, sometimes in the home, sometimes in a city or in a country, there's this commonality globally that all women and girls experience. Mm -hmm. And I've always been impacted by that. And so um, the professor set me up with uh, some connections in Asia and I, my plan, actually, when was only to stay a year. And I know my mother was so upset with me when I called after that one year and said, you know, I'm staying. I really, this is amazing. I'm learning so much. And I ended up staying almost six years before oh. I actually returned west. And I'm glad I did. I mean, it's the kind of education that you don't get from books or at school. And it, I was really, you know, doing street outreach with Victims of Human Trafficking, that taught me everything I needed to know to start my career. And that's what I did. So share with us the scary facts. Again, talk to us as though this is the first time we've ever heard of this. And by the way, there's a lot of people listening to this. Mm -hmm. This is their first time hearing about it. This is their first time hearing that slavery and sex trafficking is the number two most profitable illegal enterprise on the planet and number one is is it drugs Drugs. or is it number one is drugs then human trafficking and the number three is arms exactly exactly well in some studies they tie the arms trade with human trafficking and but but this is critical because right when i started working on this issue in this country. So that was, you know, let's say about, oh gosh, what was it? Maybe 15 years ago. Trafficking wasn't really even talked about in terms of statistics. And then what happened is it became the third largest criminal enterprise. But now today in 2015, it's now tied with the arms trade. And so that tells us that this is a growing criminal enterprise where criminals can easily make a profit off the backs of human beings. I mean, when you think about it, 
human beings can be recycled over and over again, right? They can be sold to one gang and then to another trafficker. I mean, they can be recycled. Whereas when you use drugs or arms, they can't so easily be recycled in that way. So it's very profitable for traffickers to get into this business. So how many slaves are there worldwide? There are, I mean, statistics range all over the place, but I think we can safely say that there's at least 27 million slaves living in the world today, at least living in slave-like conditions. That includes sex trafficking as well as labor trafficking. And that ranges from, you know, brothels in Bangkok, Thailand, to children being forced to work in the brick industry in India, to here locally where people are trafficked into the agricultural sector. So trafficking is a very broad definition of what is known as modern slavery. People who are forced in some way, either for either through physical force or fraud or some type of coercion, even sometimes psychological coercion, to stay in a situation where they do not have the freedom to leave. And that's usually done by the traffickers threatening them and their lives if they try their to run away. Lives. And key, especially to the young women and moms that we serve, that's what they use. They, With the young girls, they'll use their moms or sometimes their grandmothers, whoever they're close to. They'll use that to control them, saying, if you try to escape, this happened just in one of our cases. This young girl was 15. If you try to escape, we will kill your grandmother in Mexico. We know where she lives. It's this address. So wow. no 15-year-old is going to try to escape when this grandma practically raised her. You know, it was like her grandma was the love of her life, and they knew it, and they used it against her. And likewise for the young moms and sometimes dads that we serve, They'll say, look, we know your kids are living with your parents back home, and uh, if you try anything funny, we will kill them, let me tell you. And so these threats go a long way to further control the victims who are already you know, held captive. And I think what's important for new people who are new to this issue, you know, in the media they tend to portray victims of trafficking as being chained to beds or being locked in a room, and certainly we have had those types of cases. So I don't want to say that doesn't happen. It does. But the majority of our cases are such where survivors or victims at the time are, you know, walking the kids to school each day, the children of the traffickers, right. or they're doing the shopping for the family. So they're out of the house. They're out of the house. Away from their captures yep. and people listening to this thinking, well, why don't they just run? Why don't run? they just run? Exactly. That's And that's a good question. And they don't run because of the psychological coercion and the threats that they have right. to live in day in and day out. Like a good example is... You know, we served this woman, and she at the time she was in her late 20s, and uh, she basically, the trafficker basically told her every day, dogs in this country have more rights than you. If I kill a dog, I'm going to go to jail, but if I kill you, no one's going to know and no one's going to care because you wow. don't exist in this country. So, so she they, was trafficked for labor. In that particular case, it was a sweatshop. Yeah, it was okay. a labor trafficking case in a sweatshop. And that was the threat that she used. And, you know, 
traffickers do this all the time because they know that they can get away with it. Uh, most of the victims who are trafficked in this country, both domestic, meaning American girls, as well as um, immigrant survivors, people from other countries, they haven't had the greatest experiences with law enforcement. Like, right. for example, most of the American girls we serve are survivors of what's called CSEC, commercial sexual exploitation of children. So they're trafficked mostly when they're anywhere from 11 to 14 years of age. Mm -hmm. And again, day in and day out, they are told that they can't go to law enforcement. And when they do try, they're arrested for prostitution-related charges. So it's so, so reinforcing... So they're treated as criminals yeah, rather than victims. Exactly. It's reinforcing to them what the pimps and traffickers are telling them every day, yeah. that yeah. law enforcement isn't going to treat them as a victim or, or anything else, but as a criminal. Mm -hmm. And so we have a long way to go to you know, reform those systems that technically are designed to not only curb crime, but to help victims of crime, right? We have a whole office in this country, Victims of Crime through the Department of Justice, that's designed to help victims of crime, including crimes of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. But we have a long way to go to really reform those systems. And it doesn't mean that all police are bad. I want to point that out, right, too, right. that... Many times the media covers the bad stories where there is police brutality, and that's very real, and we need to address that. And at the same time, we've had cases where law enforcement officers are the, the ones who are invited to the client graduations because oh. they were the ones Same who them. made such an impact. Because time and again, survivors say to me, it was this FBI agent or this Los Angeles Police Department officer or this sheriff deputy who believed me first. And I just want to thank them for what they gave to me, which was the feeling of confidence that they mattered. Hmm. And so I say that because there's some really great trained officers out there. We've got some great leadership at police departments and law enforcement you know, agencies across the country. But in terms of a system, we have a long way to go to make the system right for survivors so that they're not treated as criminals. I mean, just imagine when that, you know, we had a case recently where a pimp was arrested, as he should have been. Within five minutes, the victim, who was a minor, was arrested too, along with a pimp. What kind of message are we sending to that victim and to all of the victims who saw what was going on? And that's what we want to fix. I mean, that's what's unique about CAST is that we're not just a social service provider. We certainly provide the, all the comprehensive care to survivors, but we don't stop there. What we do is we translate all of that learning from these cases where we're working in the trenches and we create some type of social or systemic change, either through training of law enforcement or training a police chief to change a protocol that will make a practical but yet incredible difference mm -hmm. for survivors um, after I. that. I.e. not arresting and criminalizing minors. Exactly. This is one of my points of passion is, you know, absolutely under no circumstances should a minor who is a victim of human trafficking be arrested, mm -hmm. ever. That, that, to me, is just common sense 
And not only does it trip them up later in life, because even though they're minors, then their system involved for a very long time. And you try to get a job with a rap sheet that long. You mm-hmm. can't. You cannot get a legitimate job and get back on your feet and take the right path without incredible comprehensive mm-hmm. help. You have to be able to seal the records. You have to be able to do the criminal justice advocacy that only specialized attorneys can do so that there's expungement of records. So that's a long process. We have a case right now where we're working, and it, so far it's taken almost two years to do all of the expungement of the records of this case. And meanwhile, this young woman remains unemployed because she can't get a job with that type of record, even though she was forced to commit all of these crimes while trafficked. So just it doesn't make sense for us to, you know, create double standards for victims and to, I guess, re-traumatize them by criminalizing them. We have to do something about that issue. We just, we have to. That is one of the key issues that faces the movement today. Tell us a few stories, because I know that the best way to get people's attention is not to talk about the legal aspects, and that's all very, very important policy. We need to understand that. We need to work to change policy and people's, but what I feel works the best is when people hear the stories. Right. Well, you are so right, and you're not alone. I mean, that's really... The whole strategy behind caste. You had introduced me to a woman who uh, was trafficked for labor, and she was actually right here on in, in Westwood, in the middle of L.A. Yep. area, by a very wealthy, 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 wealthy family who could have afforded to hire 20 people to right. take care of their family, right. and, and yet they chose yep. to traffic and not pay somebody and hold them captive and, and as a slave. Absolutely, absolutely. Tell us some stories. And that was one case of so many that have happened. Um, So it was an issue of what's called domestic servitude, right? So basically, these women, most of them are women. We've had some cases of men, but mostly young women who are basically indentured slaves. And they're recruited either by a foreign labor broker or some family member of the trafficker's family and told that they're coming here for a really great opportunity. They're even sometimes signing a contract that says that they're being paid a whole lot more than what they ever get paid, which mm-hmm. is usually nothing or very little. Mm-hmm. And you know, they come here thinking, finally, this happened. I can live the American dream. I can send money home I can to support, support my, my family. family. Right. You know, and, and this is interesting, too, that most of the women are... You know, they agree to come here to work because they're sending money home to their siblings so that they can actually attend school. So, you know, they're serving in some ways as the breadwinners for their families. And so it's so sad when people of extreme wealth, because in these domestic servitude cases, without any exception, these are very wealthy families. And you're right, they can afford to hire 20 nannies and a cleaning service every day, and they choose not to. In their minds, they really believe that they are treating these victims better than what they would have back home. Like, it's really? so, it's so messed up. I, I absolutely... Really? Really. They have a process of 
dehumanizing people. And I, I really have come to know that this is a class issue, right? So they target people who are vulnerable in communities, usually from their same country of origin, um, because they know they can. They know that they can get cheap labor or slave labor and not have to bother with paying them, even though they're bringing them to a country that clearly has laws around wage and hour and human rights around how all workers must be treated. And they do this because they simply don't see them as human beings. They do see them as animals or less than animals sometimes. And they're treated like that. I mean, but yet they're there to take care of their children. So they're, they're not seen as human beings or as... But yet they're there to take care of the children of the. Oh my God! I'm I just I can't even make the words come out because it's just so. I know it. Confusing to me. That's the one thing that gets me too. I mean, as you know, I'm a mom to a daughter, mm-hmm. and you know I just can't imagine treating someone who should be part of your family and treated that way when they're taking care of the people you love most mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not only that, but in most of these cases, the workers, so the slaves, are practically starved to death. I mean, with the woman that I introduced you to, there were weeks on end where the traffickers did not restock the kitchen. The, the slaves were actually made to live on a whole different floor. So this family was so wealthy, they had two floors of this huge penthouse, basically, and the workers did not live with them. They were there to only take care of the family and to clean the penthouse where the family lived. And it just shocked me when I learned that they were practically starved to death. I don't have words for that. I really don't. And yet these are the same people who are taking care of their children, of their pets, and caring for their families. It just it doesn't make sense, I realize. But what I've learned is that traffickers don't they don't make sense and mm. they have ways of justifying this horrible behavior. When I sat and listened to this woman talk and now she's oh my gosh, she's dynamic and she's she's making a difference and she looks amazing and she has that story to tell which is gonna save many, many lives. What happened to those traffickers? Yeah, so the young woman's name is Alice, and she's a very active member of our National Survivor Network and has trained the military, she's trained law enforcement, she's done so much. But most importantly, what she's done is used her experience and therefore her expertise to raise awareness and educate you know, everyone from the general public to politicians. And I remember when Alice first came to cast, she stayed at our shelter actually for just under two years. Can you just tell our listeners really quickly what happened, that she finally, somebody did ask her what was going on, and FBI showed up. Yeah, so Alice was actually enslaved initially in Dubai. So she was trafficked into Dubai first. Um, She's originally from Kenya. And then from Dubai, the family moved here. They had dual citizenship. Uh, so they moved here to the L.A. area. They moved to right. West Los Angeles in one of the most affluent communities there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was, you know, forced to 
basically work around the clock. She wasn't allowed to sleep very much because she had to be, quote-unquote, on call for the child she was taking care of. And interestingly enough, she had this amazing relationship with this small child. And when she escaped, the child was distraught and crying. And I mean, I think that's important to note that for people who ask the question, well, why don't they leave? Oftentimes, it's out of a loyalty to the children that they're taking care of. Like, how sad is that, that they know they're being treated wrongly and badly, but because they care so much for the trafficker's child or children, they stay because they feel responsible. And that that really hits my heart because I'm just like, what's happening is this deep exploitation of really, really good people, people you want to live in your community. And so, you know, with Alice, she was enslaved in this, you know, penthouse with, I mean, just beautiful surroundings, and yet she wasn't allowed to talk with her family. She didn't have access to her passport. That's one of the key things traffickers do is confiscate all of their legal documents, including for U.S. citizens, too, Mm -hmm. who are trafficked, by the way. They'll take their identification. And for me, it's very symbolic, right? It's like when you take someone's identification away, you are truly taking away their identity, right? Mm -hmm. You're saying, I own you. Mm -hmm. And so with Alice in this penthouse, I mean, she was practically starved to death. When she arrived at the shelter, she was skin and bones. I mean, I actually remember crying on my way home uh, after meeting her at the shelter because it was like she had marks on her face from a lack of nutrition. She was so skinny when it just, it was so sad. And the, the truth is she didn't have a whole lot of life in her at that time. And which is very different, <laughs> as you saw from who she is oh today. How, how long has she been a slave to this family? In this case, gosh, don't quote me on this because we've handled a lot of cases. But for Alice, I believe that she was enslaved for a total of two and a half years okay. total. And it ranges. I mean, we've had cases where they've been enslaved for you know, a couple of months to 25 years. I mean, it really is a big range depending on the opportunity to liberate them, right? And so in Alice's case for liberation, she actually met with another nanny. So this family just had had another baby, and their policy was that they had one nanny for each child. And so they were here in the U.S., and so they brought in a nanny who was an American citizen uh, through a nanny service. And so she came in, and, of course, she kind of got a weird vibe because, you know, all the workers seemed to be kind of not making eye contact and nervous. And so when she was alone with Alice, and they actually took the kids to a movie at a movie theater, one that you and I go to probably very often living Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And they were there, and they took the kids to the restroom at the same time. And that's when Alice said to her, this was after a few, you know, hours and like Alice getting the courage up to actually talk with this woman. She was afraid that this woman would actually tell the traffickers and then Alice would be good as dead. And so, because remember, no one knew where Alice was. Her family didn't know. Nobody knew she was here. Like, no one knew where Alice was. And so she summoned up the courage to talk with this 
American nanny and said, please help me. They're holding me here against my will. I don't have my passport. They stole it. You know, I don't get to eat. She basically told her story in five minutes flat in enough time to get back to the movie theater where the trafficker was waiting for them. And you can imagine how this American nanny, like she was just like, what is happening? Who do I call? I mean, she was so like full of anxiety and also fear, right? Because there she is sitting beside this trafficker now in a movie theater. So they went home and she kind of got her thoughts together and left for the day because that was the arrangement. And um, she had actually given Alice, like slipped her a piece of paper with her phone number on it. And, you know, Alice was nervous because she also didn't have access to a phone. But she found, like, she was able to get access to a cell phone through one of the trafficker's uh, mother had said, okay, I'll give you one, but, you know, use it for just family emergencies. And she used it to call. And meanwhile, the Good Samaritan, the American nanny, was already on the phone with the FBI. She called our hotline, and we arranged then for the FBI to, you know, basically, it's called an operation, but it means they'll raid the place where trafficking is occurring, and they did. So it all happened when Alice was out at a ballet class with the little girl she was taking care of. And she came back. She was, you know, basically escorted. She wasn't allowed to go to go anywhere alone. She had to be escorted with this little girl. And when she came back, there were 20 FBI agents waiting. And, you know, they were basically investigating and asking questions of the traffickers. And that's when they said, you know, are you Alice? And she said, yes you know, do you want to come with us? And she said, yes. Hmm. And then it was great because the FBI said, is anyone else here ready to come with us? And more victims went with her, right? Yeah, it was this powerful operation. And then Alice was taken to our shelter because we worked closely with the FBI in their investigations of trafficking. And, you know, she stayed with us about two years and I just saw her completely transform. I mean, I do believe that Alice has always been a strong person. I mean, she uh, was actually a nurse in Kenya. So imagine someone who was educated, didn't come of means, like she didn't come from a wealthy family, and that's why she took this job with this family, because she could make more doing that. Or so they told her than she could being a nurse back so in Kenya. So was this family prosecuted? The family was not prosecuted. Yeah. So I know it's, it's shocking, right? It was investigated, and because there were some political issues, what I will say is that there's a lot of different circumstances that come to play in these cases. Sometimes it's just simply there isn't enough corroboration. So you would think, you would hope that, gosh, with, with this much of the story that you just told us, that there would be a perfect happy ending, and at the end of the day, there's not. Well, I like to reframe happiness because for people we serve, this is one of the things I've learned from survivors is that even though they want to see justice, just like all of us, and you know, justice meaning the traffickers being sentenced and being held accountable for the crime that they committed, happiness also is getting the support that they need, being believed, 
and being able to rebuild again with the support that they deserve. And so Alice has done that. I mean, now she is a mom. And in fact, you don't know this yet, but she's actually expecting. When you met her, she was... She had just found out that she was expecting wow. her second child with her husband. And, you know, she's making plans to go back to school so that she can also be a nurse here because she was a nurse already in her home country in Kenya. Well, thanks for diffusing me because... No, I know. It's <laughs> no, I needed to hear to... that because, you know, there's me, I admit it, and I'm sure a lot of people are this way as well, that the story's not over until, you know, we get justice. And yeah. what you're saying is, no, the fact that these survivors are away from that and they get to rebuild their lives and, and that's what we need to focus yeah, on. Yeah, and back reunited with their families. Right. Like that's that right. actually is more important to them okay. than putting the traffickers away. So you have to remember that I really want the listeners to understand that going through a criminal trial as a witness, because you know, clearly a traffic victim is the key witness in those right. cases. Right. It is hard. I mean, my staff works around the clock when we've got active prosecutions happening because... You have to relive it and face them. Oh, you have to relive it. And the defense counsel asks such sometimes incredibly stupid questions, but also really intrusive ones, right? We have such a long way to go, don't we? We have a long way to go to improve the system so that there is justice being served in all of the ways. Now, worldwide, of all of the... People who are trafficked, 40% are for sex trafficking and 60% are for labor trafficking. Well, those are pretty good statistics, but the truth is no one really knows. We think that it's about 40, 60, or 50%, 50%, but the reality is this is such an underground issue in many countries. It's really hard to get a handle on its scale. So that's why when you research statistics, you might find studies that say there are, you know, 12 million slaves worldwide, and some are saying 30 million. Right. So, but even 12 million, even if we take the conservative number, that's too many that's way too in this many. day and age. And then the same goes for, you know, the the difference between sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Some studies will say that labor trafficking is more prevalent. Some will say that sex trafficking is more prevalent. For us, it simply doesn't matter. The point is is that both are way too prevalent and that we have numbers, like we have real statistics that I can stand behind here in Southern California where our numbers have doubled each and every year for five years straight. So we know. Well, tell that us it's what those are issue. then. What's happening here in the U.S. and more specific, what's happening here in uh, Los Angeles? Which I was reading, like Los Angeles is a big uh, center. I think you uh, said. Um, yeah. So, what are some of the other pockets in the U.S. that are so, huge for trafficking? Absolutely. So, Los Angeles, unfortunately, is as great as it is for other reasons. It is a magnet, and it's a magnet because you know it's close to the border. It has lots of ports of entry, and you know it's full of industries that attract slave labor and sex trafficking. So. Mm-hmm. For example, a lot of traffickers or pimps will say, you know, why don't you come to Los Angeles and be a model or I'll set you up to become an actor or an actress. And what it does is it appeals to, especially young girls and women, but sometimes boys too, 
that they're trying to run away from something. Maybe they don't have such a good life at home in their home state, or sometimes they're born and raised in L.A., and they just want to have a better opportunity. So we definitely have seen increases here locally in Los Angeles in both sex trafficking and labor trafficking. And what are the statistics about numbers here in this area? Yeah, so last year alone, we served about 400 different cases. Okay. That is huge. I mean, before, when I first came to CAST about a decade ago, we would get maybe 30 cases a year. So it has totally skyrocketed. And I don't think that we even... I mean, I I don't even think we're reaching, you know, as many victims that that there are in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. alone. What we know is that when we do outreach in specific industries and just general outreach, we definitely see an increase in calls to our hotline. When we train uh, a church or a temple, we get referrals from them. So it it really is a, a matter of training and making people aware that this can happen in the United States, it is happening in our own neighborhoods, and when we do that, we actually get direct referrals on real cases. I want to ask you about that. I'm, yeah. I'm going to take you all over the place. Sure, I've got so sure, many yeah. questions here. Can you just share with us uh, another story of, a, of somebody that you have served, a survivor, maybe perhaps um, a survivor of you know sex trafficking? Absolutely. And by the way, people think that this all trafficking and slaves come from foreign countries, and I've heard statistics that as many as 100,000 young U.S. kids are trafficked every single year, and they stay here in the U.S., that the number one um, uh, perpetrators or violators Mm -hmm. of U.S. kids are U.S. citizens. Correct. That is absolutely correct. So we don't know the full number, but we know through our partner organizations that work on um, issues of missing and exploited children, it's a national organization, that about 100,000 kids are at risk for trafficking. But we don't yet know the scale of it actually happening. But I can tell you firsthand, we see these cases every day where, you know, you ask for an example. Um, We had a case recently of a young woman at the time she was I think 17 and like many of our cases her home life was not good she was actually from another state close to the midwest so she left a bad situation which could have been abusive or who knows what thinking the streets are, are safer and better well no actually she didn't go to the streets at first she thought she was coming to los angeles because she answered an online ad Hmm. to go to graphic design school. Hmm. So traffickers are really savvy people, right? Hmm. They set up these, you know, ads where young girls or women and boys, they think they're coming into a really good situation. And, you know, she always liked design. And even when I talk with her today, she feels incredibly... um, like embarrassed actually because she fell for this ruse and I keep telling her that it's not her fault I mean anyone would believe that this particular trafficker who was a pimp even got other women to talk with this young girl about how great the school was you know what a great guy he was to to work with and so basically he got people to endorse him and what he was doing 
And so she came here by bus and arrived. And the first night, he took her around in his car and drove up and down what's called a track. There's streets where prostitution is prevalent in, in the city of Los Angeles or actually all over the county. So there's certain tracks in the county that are known for this activity. And, you know, she had lived a very sheltered life, and she was also young. And, um, you know, she even asked, she's like, wow, do all, do all women dress like that here? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's L.A. I mean, if you want to be in this industry, you know, you have to be like this. This is what Los Angeles is. And then he took her to a motel. The other women who endorsed him were there. And he basically beat her up and raped her so badly that she was in shock. And he put her out on the street to work uh, as a prostitute that night. That very night, she saw a police car. And she tried to, you know, get his attention. And he basically just waved her off because... You know, all the girls out here are like that. They all chose to be here. Exactly. And so it really demonstrates the importance Mm. of training and leadership of these criminal justice systems and law enforcement because they are primary first responders. It's really critical. And, you know, that fast forward, however, with that story, Unfortunately, it led her to be in that life for two years before she was confident enough to go to another law enforcement officer. But this time, she was believed and brought to cast, and now she's one of our clients getting the help that she needs. So that's an example of a domestic sex trafficking case where, um, you know, in this case, she was trafficked from another state, but a lot of our cases here in Los Angeles, these are girls who were born and raised in Los Angeles. Mm. And, you know, almost always they're running away from, from something because there's either some type of sexual abuse at home or uh, domestic violence. Many times, too, when young kids tell their parents that they're gay, they're also you know, not accepted. And so they run away thinking that they can be accepted elsewhere. And unfortunately, there are pimps and traffickers who just swoop in and prey upon them because they know they're vulnerable. And they just simply want to be loved and, you know, have a way to support themselves. Not that I want to focus on this because I really don't, but how young? Yeah. How young does it start? For most of our sex trafficking cases, it's around 11, uh, 11 years of age, mm. but it ranges all the way up to like late 20s. Mm. But you might be surprised to know that our youngest client has actually been two years of age. Okay. Our oldest client has been 64. So it really gives you an idea of the range. And what we know for sure is that traffickers target not necessarily age, although in some cases for sex trafficking, they do target girls and young women, but it's really targeting vulnerability. So kids and adults alike who are either looking for a better opportunity to improve their lives or running away from a particularly difficult situation like domestic violence or sexual abuse at home. 
I had heard it once said or read it someplace that a life expectancy for somebody who is pulled into trafficking can be as short as seven years yeah. because of the, the the drugs and the lifestyle and the beatings and that lack of nutrition. Mm. I mean, our many of our clients, you know, cast is kind of considered an extended family even after they graduate from our programs. And so I can tell you firsthand that former clients we have have had cancer, chronic health problems, and even though sometimes it's difficult to relate it back to the trafficking experience. How could you not, though? How could you not? How could you exactly. Not? That's exactly mm. it. And that doesn't even get into, I mean, that's just the physical health. Right. Think about the mental health yeah. consequences, right? So we've developed a training program for mental health practitioners because you would think that mental health professionals would know how to treat a survivor of human trafficking but the reality is is that it's such a an emerging issue that it's actually not taught at school an emerging issue that has become the second most profitable criminal activity on the planet exactly Jeez. which is why mental health practitioners really well, need to know how to do this you know the reason why i was attracted to you and to cast and the work that you do i mean i'm thrilled that there are people who are working very very hard on policy and educating law enforcement and all of those things but i wanted to see more grassroots yeah. of working with the victims and the survivors mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I'm sure it surprised some people when you just said it that Alice was with you for two years, because I'm sure people thinking, "Oh, cast, it's like a, a it's like a thirty day program, a little <laughs> shelter. We come in for the weekend, and then we're thrown back out onto the street." But that they stay with you that long, and so I know we've used up so much of our time here. But can you just talk about you know the services that cast offers, but also with the call to action of what can our listeners do? How can they in their communities, you know, we don't yet have a caste, uh, a coalition uh, to abolish slavery and trafficking in every city. Right. It's a, you know, I want to say that it's actually the reason I joined caste was because they made a commitment. The board and the founders of caste made a commitment to provide comprehensive and long-term services, which is very resource-intensive. I mean, it's You don't, you don't want to be involved with a Band-Aid. I do not. I'm not a Band-Aid person, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm a community person. And okay. I wanted to work with an organization that was as committed to community development as much as I was, personally. Mm-hmm. Right. And so CAST is that. I mean, it's a coalition of over a hundred different organizations in Los Angeles alone that provide comprehensive and specialized care to survivors of trafficking. So CAST is the common entity in a survivor's life, but we access all of these great community benefits on behalf of our clients, on behalf of survivors, so that they can get the comprehensive care that they need. We are not interested in contributing to the population of the urban poor. We exist to help people truly get back on their feet again from, you know, their health, their mental health, to, you know, financial issues, financial literacy, and and getting jobs. And that's important to us. Hmm. And so that's what we do. We provide shelter. We provide case management. We provide legal services, which 
might be you know surprising to a lot of people that that is actually key to like getting back on your feet financially because we do employment authorizations and expungement of records which then allows access to good jobs which could legally be expensive if they had to do it on their own they wouldn't let's face it they They would not be able to afford it and we provide free legal services so it's this comprehensive program that is a continuum of care all the way from our 24-hour hotline where we meet people where they're at just as they're coming out of slavery all the way to getting the keys to their first apartment right and i mean it is hard work it is uh, I don't want to downplay that, that my staff um, really go through hardship with these cases. I mean, we see a lot of violence and a lot of trauma because of that violence. Mm. But at the same time, we feel so, I mean, so I know this sounds strange, but we feel so blessed because we see people go through this transformation. Mm. And what it tells us, like what we know firsthand, and I I don't need statistics to tell me this, that we know that with the right support, survivors of trafficking are very resilient people. Hmm. And when you think about it, that they have the resilience to either run away from a bad situation, to run to what they think is a good opportunity already. So they already have that innate resilience about them. And, you know, with the right support, even though the violence happened to them is a chapter in their life, and it's a terrible, very bad chapter that takes a long time to recover from, but at the end of that, they absolutely have everything it takes Mm -hmm. to get back on their feet again. And that's what I want people to understand. Like, a lot of people are kind of afraid of of survivors of trafficking. They think, Mm -hmm. again, that they're so traumatized that they can't, can't... hold a job or have a conversation or serve as a policy expert. That has not been my experience. You've proven that wrong. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've met several. Yeah, exactly. They're, and you can see... They're that, advocates and they're well-spoken and yeah. they are yeah, exactly. truly, truly huge, huge contributors. I agree. And well, they want to do this because they want to end human trafficking. They don't want this to happen to their own children or to someone else's children. Well, this might be a a tall question or a tall uh, task here, but what can our listeners do? That's a great question. And I have a feeling that other cities and other organizations are studying you, correct? They're studying what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, many of our programs at CAS, like the shelter and certainly the survivor leadership programs like the National Survivor Network, those are being replicated, you know, across the country and in some cases even outside of the United States in Mm -hmm. countries that have the resources to build a shelter, for example. So we're really pleased about that. We want to share our learning with others so that we can have this, you know, whole map of coalition partners to serve survivors better. But yeah, what listeners can do is to educate themselves more. I mean, a way to do that is to go to our website. It is jam-packed full of information about trafficking, both labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Um, They can get involved by joining us on social media. Um, so our website is castla.org. That's jam-packed full of information about trafficking. So the first step is to educate yourselves 
even further. It always begins with education because, I mean, just the, the PowerPoint that you sent to me, something that talks about uh, victims may not appear to want help. That was so informing for me. Right. And then some of the, just the language surrounding this of what words we should be using and, and uh, not using. And right? not using. Exactly. I mean, so, and that was just one little PowerPoint that you sent to me. So I can't imagine how somebody can just engulf themselves in your website to really truly become educated exactly and so our powerpoint and the information in it is definitely in our website and then we are very active we've got a very active outreach and policy program that is not just local to los angeles but a national scale and so people can join us on social media if they want to take action and help us. They can call their legislators when we have an active bill in place. We're always working on either some type of legislation that would truly impact the lives of survivors of trafficking Mm -hmm. and prevention. A lot of the laws that we pass are really oriented towards prevention, ending human trafficking in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then I would say too that, you know, organizations like CAST and others who are serving survivors of trafficking, they need resources, particularly if they're providing comprehensive care. So I would challenge our listeners today to find an organization that isn't only raising awareness, but really working grassroots and providing that long-term care. That could be as simple as asking that question. I mean, how long do, do you serve victims of trafficking and how long do you serve them? And if it's more than a year, that tells you that it's comprehensive care. And I would really encourage people to support those organizations financially because the government resources keep getting scaled back more and more every year. And we simply need private resources to be able to support that long-term care. But at the end of the day, we know firsthand that is what works. That's what works to get survivors back on their feet. Again, it's not a mandate. It's not a weekend visit to exactly a shelter. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And it also provides for survivors impacting all of this amazing social change that's happening all over the country and, frankly, all over the world today. Well, like any uh, worthy cause or heartbreak situation, you need money. That's true. So, yeah, that is true. That uh, is so that's, that's an easy thing. Well, not an easy thing. For some people, it is easy. Some people, $10 oh, is yeah. a lot, but that absolutely makes a difference. It you absolutely know? does. I mean, that's exactly what we're looking but for. But also the resources. So you're saying that people who could provide resources, I could offer pro bono legal services or... Yes. Um, yeah, pro bono legal We're setting services. it up for a cast to send, we're providing full scholarships yep. to attend our schools. Exactly. To survivors of trafficking. Exactly. So whatever your industry is, there's so much opportunity. And if you need help thinking about it, I can be very creative about <laughs> what we can do together. You, you know this You've never had a problem to ask <laughs> when I need this. That's true. All right, I'm getting for, right back to you, Kay. And for many, like... You know, I think a lot of people, especially individuals, like to be a host to some great education for their friends or colleagues. So, you know, something that's happening here in Los Angeles is one of our partners is putting together salons, like basically small parties of maybe 20, 30 people, so that we can provide a program. So I'll come and talk about 
what we do and the issue of human trafficking. And then it gives those 20 or 30 people more education and one-on-one time with someone who knows about this issue. So that's the outreach program that you do. So Exactly. Which could help you help them identify people at risk. That's right. Great. Yeah, that's exactly it. I can't believe this. We really could have gone on for a couple of hours. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's a big topic. It's complex. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, uh, let's yeah. <laughs> let this be the beginning, and we need some follow-up. But hopefully people listening to this will also do their work, Yes. do their home play yeah. to uh, follow up and educate themselves. Absolutely. I really, I mean, what I want to tell them is that this issue is at such an inflection point. You know, here in Los Angeles, around the country, and around the whole world. And by the way, it's not just in Los Angeles and big cities. It's in oh, no, it's in Colorado cases. Springs. We it's sure in have. yeah. It's yeah, in little seen, tiny pockets too. We have absolutely seen cases in rural areas where mm. sometimes my staff will even go there to help provide like an infrastructure so that the mm. survivors can be helped. So I would say it's an exciting time also for your listeners to get involved because. Mm. You know, what a great opportunity to get involved in ending modern slavery. I mean, this country has such a, a history with slavery, and this is our opportunity to come together now and truly end it for good. Well, thank you, Kay, so much for being such a great resource for me personally. Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you for your partnership, too. Mm. I always I enjoy so much the conversations we have. Mm. and. You always, you know, help so much in getting the word out to the right people so that they then not only can help, but I think it really adds value to people's lives. Like, it provides them even more purpose, mm-hmm. knowing that they can leave this amazing legacy of ending slavery mm-hmm. in their lifetime. I don't know how you don't go home heartbroken every night. Well, you know, my family and I actually have a deal where I don't take my work home. It's very hard, but, you know, I also have this beautiful 10-year-old daughter. (laughs) There (laughs) you go. she keeps me, you know, she brings a lot of joy to my life. And I don't quite have words for it, but it just, it's what keeps me going, you know? So I've got, at work, I have the privilege of working with survivors who really, in a lot of ways, teach me resilience. It's funny because it's kind of ironic. I provide programs that are about resilience and empowerment, but really what they're doing in return is teaching me empowerment Mm. and resilience. Mm. So it's kind of this two-way street. what you were talking about in the very beginning. Yeah, it's exactly. The power of sisterhood. The power of sisterhood. It's just amazing. And, And I would extend that to... You know, sisterhood and brotherhood, too. We do have men who are part of our National Survivor Network. And I think one of the most amazing things I heard from one of our male clients was, you know what, Kay? Cass taught me how to be a real man. Wow, that's great. It really struck me that we're doing more than just providing direct services. We're really teaching people helpful and healthy life skills Mm -hmm. so that they're, you know, better neighbors and better employees, better moms and dads, you know, and and I think that's really important this day and age. Congratulations. Well, thank you. You're amazing. You are too. You are too. I I really appreciate you. (laughs) Let's keep going. Thanks everybody for listening to this. Yes. Thank you. Get busy. (laughs) 
Yes.